I don't have a whole reservoir of jokes this morning, but I did hear about a Christmas program in church. These little kids were doing their thing, and it came time for the three wise men, and uh, they were not real, they didn't seem to be real mannered about how they went about it. The first kid came out and said to the baby there, was he stuck something, I said, here, this is your gold. And... Uh, the second kid came out, and he put something over here, and he said, here, this is for you, this is myrrh. <clears throat> so the third kid came, and he put his package there, and he said, I don't know what it is, but Frank sent it. <laughs> okay. You heard, you heard read from Luke chapter 2, the story that we traditionally read and hear and love of the birth of Jesus at the time of the census and how that he was born in a stable and how uh, amazingly in a, a swirl of neglect and a swirl of busyness, God deposited his gift of infinite love, his treasure, his sacrifice, his substitute and all of that. So we're familiar with that story that these Young men read. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 12 this morning uh, a story that tr truly is a Christmas, the Christmas story. And as you read it, you will, uh, you will have no doubt that this is the Christmas story. And yet it is so vastly, completely different from the Christmas story that we know and that we love and that we're familiar with. Um, there are no wise men crossing the desert in this story. There are no shepherds guarding their sheep in this story. Um, <clears throat> for that matter, there is no city of Bethlehem mentioned, and there is no stable, and there is no baby, and no swaddling clothes, and there is uh, there are none of the elements that we traditionally make uh, essential part of our Christmas. None of these are there. And that's because... The setting of this story and this vision, which it tells us is a sign, is not Bethlehem. The setting is in the heavens. And from the perspective of the heavens, the focus was not on a stable. The focus was not on this drama of where a pregnant woman might find shelter to give birth. Those were earthly details, and God took care of them, and he provided that they could all unfold. But this story of Christmas has none of, that, of those because this is just the, boil, the, the story boiled down to several very raw elements. There's only three characters in this story. There is a beautifully dressed woman. It says that she... She was clothed with the sun and the moon and, and 12 stars. There is a, a fierce red dragon representing bloodiness, anger, hunger, fierceness. And then there is the male child who is to be given birth. And uh, those are the only three characters that are mentioned. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read the whole entire chapter not going to talk about all the chapter, but yet all of it does have something to do with 
this entrance of God in our world through his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read this from today's living, the living, uh, something or other, New Living Translation, <clears throat> Revelation 12. And then I witnessed a great event, an event of great significance, a sign. I saw a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon beneath her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, and she cried out because her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another sign. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, seven crowns on his head. And his tail swept one-third of the stars in the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her baby as soon as it was born. She gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod, and her child was snatched away from the dragon and was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where God had prepared a place to care for her for 1260 days. Then there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon lost the battle. And he and his angels were forced out of heaven. This great dragon, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the whole world, was thrown down to the earth with all his angels. And I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens, It has come at last, salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accusers, accuser of our brothers has been, has been thrown down to the earth. The one who accuses them before God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you, live in the, and, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. But terror will come. On the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. When the dragon realized that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But she was given two wings like those of a great eagle, so that she could fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, and there she could be cared for and protected from the dragon for a time and times and a half time. Then the dragon tried to drown the woman with a flood of water that flowed from his mouth, but the earth helped her by opening up its mouth and swallowing the river that gushed out from the mouth of the dragon. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children, all who keep God's commandments 
and maintain their testimony for Jesus. Well, a lot of mysteries and enigmas, a lot of symbolism. It all started, it says, in this vision when John says he saw in heaven a great sign. We're familiar with signs. Uh, signs come in all shapes and colors. We, we know what a hexagon mean, means, especially when it's red. It's a sign. We see pink neon signs and flashing electronic signs. And signs are portals into truth. Uh, probably most of us here, at least those of us who are a, a bit adventurous, have probably tested the sign that says wet paint. We see it there, taped on a bench or taped on a wall or something. or something. We, really? That paint don't look wet to me. The sign says, the sign gives me the truth. But sometimes I have to, uh, I have to, I have to test it. But signs do this for us. They encourage us to stop and rest, for example. Maybe and spend the night. They, they, um, they let us know there's a rest stop ahead or a motel or something like that. They, uh, they warn us. The bridge surface freezes before the road surface, so be very careful. Signs are not always rectangular. Signs are not always fastened to a pole. Signs are not always placed in a windowsill, windowsill in a window. Sometimes we look at the dark clouds and we say, well, it's a sign, it's good. the rain's coming. Because we can, we can read from simply the color and the position of the clouds an ominous message that it's bringing us. If, we're on, if you're on a, ever out on the water on a canoe or a kayak or something like that, and you begin to hear a roar on the water up ahead, it's a sign. You better pay attention. There's white water ahead of you. And you can know it from, from, from that sign. Many, many, many types of those things. We know about signs. We're familiar with them from our earthly lives. <clears throat> this says in Revelation 12 that a sign appeared in heaven. It wasn't simply up above the horizon. It wasn't simply John was looking up and there he noticed and mixed in with the clouds. He had, a, he had a vision. We, we read this story of, of, of how he was caught up into the heavens. So maybe with his physical eyes, he really wasn't even seeing anything. Maybe his eyes were closed. But he was seeing, uh, he was seeing images that God was flashing on the screen. He was seeing events. And this isn't chronology. When you read Revelation, the whole book, um, it's impossible to say that it starts out point A and then goes point B and point C. It's all mixed up. There's backwards and there's forward. Here in the middle of it, we, we come to what is obviously uh, a, a glimpse of something that happened behind the scenes in heaven that it happened probably 50, 60 years ago in John's life. This had already taken place. The birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the ascension of Christ, John, one of his disciples, that had all been already finished on the earth. And yet John sees it unroll in this glimpse of, of what he sees in heaven. And, and so 
what he, what he sees, if I can put it here in a nutshell, is that there was a gigantic conflict between the dragon, the devil, whose determination or desire was to destroy all that God wanted to do in his love, all that God had created in his love. You know, I was thinking about this just recently. Do you think it's possible that God could have created a perfect universe in which there, had, there was or had been where there would be no conflict? I mean, is that a possibility? I suppose that it is. If God had wanted, most of all, a universe to unfold where there's no conflict whatsoever, I suppose he could have done it somehow. Um, do you think... Uh, do you think that it was possible that God could have created um, a universe of love where all was, everything was an expression of love without conflict? <clears throat> it seems like, at least to our mathematical and logical minds, that that would have been impossible to do uh, because conflict is kind of a hitchhiker that comes along with free will. And God, if he wanted to create a universe of love, would have had to include free will. Because there really isn't love without a freedom to express it. A freedom to choose it. If it's anything else, it seems like it's not really love. So, of course, God had this dilemma before him. He, he certainly wanted a universe where there wasn't conflict. At the same time, he certainly wanted a universe there where love could be expressed in relationships between each other. But always, as I said, like a hitchhiker sneaking in with free will is always conflict. Anytime there's free will, there is the potential for conflict, always. And so God, who... Uh, much as he may have wanted a conflict-free world, he did not want that so badly that he was going to exclude free will. No, no siree. Free will had to be there at the very center of all that he created because that is the highest expression and platform from which love comes. And so uh, this was what he had created, and now it is Satan's desire to, to destroy it or to keep God's attempt from fixing it to ever become effective. And God is determined that he's going to fix what he started and what free will um, actually caused damage to. So now you have in this story, in this glimpse of vision, John saw these three characters. This woman. Who is the woman? Of course, we tend to think and first of all leap to the image of the woman is Mary. This, this is the mother of Jesus. And of course it is. If you said to me in Revelation 12, is the woman Mary? I would say, well, yes and no. It is Mary because of the earthly version and the earthly reality. Of course, this was the one who gave birth to the male child. So it has to be representative of Mary. And yet, and yet, where do we read of Mary, or how do we consider Mary having 12 stars and the sun and the moon and, and the kind of imagery that we read about in the Old Testament as connected with 
Israel, the people from whom Jesus came, the people out of which Jesus came. Remember uh, Joseph, the, uh, the, the son of Israel, one of the 12 pillars or 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph had a, had a dream when, before he was uh, captured in jealousy and sold off into Egypt. He had a dream in which the sun and the moon and the stars were bowing down to him. And his father Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, said, Really, Joseph, are your mother and I and your 11 brothers going to bow down to you? Uh, you think this is going to happen? So there's, there's simply, uh, right there in that one story, uh, an image of the sun and the moon and the 12 stars all together. But it's the family of Jacob. It's the people of Israel. And so not only, of course, physically did Mary give birth to this infant, but of course, in many respects, as we read the poems and the prophecies of the Old Testament, we realize that all of the, all of the expectation and all the preparation and, and everything of the literature of these people was focusing on God's coming among them in a new way. Ezekiel and Jeremiah and people like that said, oh, listen, God's going to do a new thing here in Israel, and he's going to send a new representation, and it will be the Christ. And so uh, it seems to me in, in this image that John is seeing, it's a woman for sure, but it's not simply Mary the wife of Joseph, it's Mary, it's Israel, the wife of God, over and over in the Old Testament. Israel is um, portrayed and described as, as the wife, the companion of God. And God is in anguish over her unfaithfulness, just like a husband would be in anguish over the unfaithfulness of his wife and so forth. This is part of who Jesus was. He came as uh, not only a, a physical being, but he came as a representative and, spring, and, and God chose to bring the spiritual redemption of our world out of this group, this family of people that we call the Israelites. God didn't just simply break apart the clouds and descend on his throne. Uh, like something out of a science fiction movie. God moved into the stream of humanity. And as the genealogy in the beginning of Matthew and Luke let us know, um, he came from a group. He came from a family where a word and a, an environment had already been prepared for the coming of God among us. And so uh, this labor that John says, I saw this woman in she was pregnant and she was in pain and she was crying out because she was at the point of delivery of her labor. Um, this is a way of saying that when you read the Old Testament and you, and you pick up this anguish and you pick up this longing that says, when are you going to come? Remember um, when the wise men came and talked to Herod, and Herod consulted the scholars and the, and, the, and the chief priest and said, where is this one supposed to come? And they knew immediately, out of you, Bethlehem, will come. 
it was prophesied that one would come. And the history of Israel for many, many generations had, had sort of been in trouble and in anguish and in expectancy, waiting for that birth to come. Not just that it would be delivered, but Israel itself had, had so many highs and lows as a people. And, and they, they, were, um, they were waiting for this. Here's an interesting verse in the New Testament. Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, when the time may fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem those under law. You've read this many times. I just wanted to highlight two items, three items. Number one, woman is Mary. Mary was the woman who came and gave birth to Jesus. Law, under law, is Israel. That's the people from which he came. That's the system. Those are the sacrifices that had been, had been brought to our world and taught to humanity. Um, so you have here both Mary, the, the physical mother, but you have also Israel, the spiritual mother. Um, but the time had fully come. The word time and the coming of time represents not only uh, either Mary or Israel, but represents the idea that God changes how he deals with people. And in this time, he had this covenant, this understanding, this agreement. But now, as Jesus explained in his lifetime, this was a new, this was a new day and a new covenant and a new agreement. And so Jesus said to his disciples, this is my blood of a new covenant for you. This is a new deal, a new, a, a new understanding um, that is 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 coming to you. I don't know whether you thought about this or not, but this was something that occurred to me as I was trying to put together thoughts on, in this passage. Very shortly after the time of Jesus died, within the lifetime of many folks there who were part of his life, heard his teachings, saw his crucifixion, and saw his resurrection, or were witnesses of that, within the lifetime of many of those folks, Israel as a political entity was wiped out and never existed as a sovereign nation again for all these years until the 20th century. If, if the history of Israel is remarkable in the earth. The Israelite people were scattered all over the world, and they've been persecuted, and they've been protected over and over and over. There have been attempts to annihilate them and attempts to get rid of them. This is the anguish. This is the expectancy of labor. This is the, this is the plight of the Jewish people not only prior to the birth, but also, it says, remember how once the baby was born, then the dragon sought to attack the mother and chased her and opened his mouth and spewed out water and, and, and continued to pursue the mother of his child. This is the history of the Jewish people. Um, and my point is that Jesus was born very near the end of this old method, this old covenant, this this, this old agreement of God among with people. And he was the one who initiated the new covenant. And very quickly, po politics changed. Very quickly, the nation of Israel, with its identity, with its sacrificial system, with its temple, was all gone. And, and never existed again in an independent state until 1948. And still today, there is no... There is no temple. 
There are no sacrifices made because the old covenant was gone. In my opinion, you've heard me say this before, uh, and I say this very humbly, and I say this um, most sincerely. There should be no Jews left in the world today. Every Jew should be a Christian because what they're looking for has come. And, and in spite of a, the, a tradition that's going to continue to keep on looking and continue to keep on looking no matter what God has done, the baby has been born. The, the, the woman has delivered and she has done what she was, was given to do. And there's, there's, no more, there's, no more, um, there's no more need for her to keep searching for the baby. It's already been born. And, and all the Jews everywhere who, uh, who are sincere, sincerely waiting and seeking the Messiah need to wake up and understand that. They need to realize the truth of what it is that they're part of and what it is that they are mistakenly still seeking. But this is why, from God's perspective, when Jesus was born, it's saying that the time was full. There, there's no more waiting. There's no more conditions and there's nothing more to come. The child who's going to rule the earth has, been, has already been born. So, I wanted to understand it. Okay. Now, in the story there, in the vision that John saw, was this most fierce and fantastic dragon, savage, uh, savage as, as he could be. Um, I, I take it the word, or that the color red is a symbol of just bloodthirstiness. And not, just, not just mad, but angry, angry mad, crazy mad. And this, this image of this horrible, horrifying dragon in all its power and all of its hatred waiting before... A woman who is so vulnerable in that moment that she's giving birth is horrifying, terrifying. Just to just to ponder what John was was what he was seeing, and and what was unfolding before him, the the vulnerability in that moment of what God was doing. Christmas, the danger and drama of Bethlehem was a lot more than simply. The fact that Jesus had a tough place, that Mary and Joseph had a tough place to find their, have their baby. Or that perhaps the government was hostile towards them. Or they had unsanitary conditions when the child was born and so forth. All of that is earthly drama and earthly details. But far greater behind the scenes was this bloodthirsty dragon seeking never to allow it to happen in any way. Seeking to, uh, to, seeking to kill this whole deal. Because, here's the reason, of course, we all understand this. Satan had been privileged to be in heaven. He had been, he had been, he was kicked out of heaven. It says he took his tail and swept a third of the stars from the sky and swept them to the earth. We're told elsewhere that a third of all the little angels that God had created as his messengers and his servants, a third of them rebelled with Satan. And became his cronies in that, in that process. And so Satan was very aware of, of the plan and the preparation of God. And he was 100% hostile to, to hoping to stop this in some way, shape, or form. And of course it's because he was aware that this was God's most vulnerable spot. 
that God couldn't just allow, stay in heaven and, and by fiat make rules that's going to change men's hearts. God had to come and become a man, first of all, to pay for and take care of sin so that it could be forgiven, but also so that he could, he could sympathize with us and, and give to us the strength and the power and the spirit that we could become children of God. Could, could only happen in that way. Satan was well aware of that, that the Lord could not redeem us unless he became one of us. And so he was ready. And this was the image that John saw when, when he sees this unmistakable catastrophe ready to happen as soon as the birth takes place. Um, and, uh, uh, and of course, we know that the earthly portrayal of that drama, the earthly uh, expression of that drama was when Herod did try to kill the actual baby. When Herod so uh, incensed that perhaps there was a contender for his throne, savage Herod, savage Herod, who, uh, you know, you could almost draw a picture of as a great red dragon because he was, he was so violent and he was so paranoid and he had so many people slaughtered, including John the Baptist. Um, you could almost picture him in such a, as such a savage beast. And he's the one who sent the soldiers to Bethlehem. And he said, kill them all. Any, any male child, uh, we're going to just be, we're going to just draw the, the, draw the line way outside of where any possibilities would be. If they're two years old or under, kill them. What a savage and brutal expression. And yet, this is what happened, and this is part of the Christmas story. It's a, it's a terrible part of, of the story of God's love and this baby that was being born. And yet, that we saw even here, just even here on the earth. Um, this, as you know, and you've heard and many, many times explained, I know, this was already foreseen many, many years ago in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve first got off the path and God came to them and gave some penalties and said to them, said to Eve, your seed and the serpent will do battle. The seed of the woman, this child born to the woman would be doing battle with the serpent. Now what it says and what John saw was, as the serpent waited, it says, so she gave birth, the baby was born, and the child was snatched up to God. And the dragon was not able to devour the baby as he had hoped. Um, the best I can see, the best I can understand, that little phrase, and the baby was snatched up to God, is just a, a brief expression of the whole earthly life of Jesus, 33 years. During that time, there were, there were times where Satan attempted to get to Jesus. He attempted to get to Jesus' followers. In fact, you know, the Gospels, a uh, number of them, several of them say that when Judas made the decision to betray Jesus so that physically they could capture him, put him to death, the devil filled Satan, or the, the devil filled Judas. That's what we're told. It was just one of the attempts to snatch this baby 
to prevent the cross and the tomb and the grave. But somehow or other, through each one of those things, and I suppose, as you know, we talk about on Easter Sunday, I suppose that when Satan finally got Jesus nailed on the cross, he thought, finally, I can, I've devoured this, this child. And maybe he thought for a moment, but, you know, as I said here in the sermon notes, a, a three-day death is suspicious. Anybody who's only dead for three days, uh, something, something definitely is going on. And so that was, uh, there, there, there's no details given in this heavenly side, in this heavenly vision. It's just the fact that, that immediately the protection of God set in on this infant. And he was snatched up to God. I take it to mean that the baby on the earth was born, lived, 30, several, lived out several years as a human, taught his teachings, uh, died on the cross, was raised from the grave, showed himself alive and proved who he was and then was uh, then ascended unto heaven. That all that is like a little short parenthesis that's just covered by that little, little phrase that the baby was, was snatched up unto God. This, uh, this is a great danger, this, this child being born in the presence of the dragon. But... The, the situation is that the, the, the dragon is desperate. And that's why he's crouched and he's ready to strike. And he's waiting in anticipation. And he's going to throw his full fury against the innocent baby. The, the, the reason was because he knew and he understood that this, if this child was born, the beginning of the end had happened for him. It was failure. Uh, to put it in some military terms, this was a breach or a beachhead type of a moment. In other words, it's a moment where the reversal of the momentum begins. Always in military parlance, when they're able to establish a beachhead, it's, it's a way of saying, we drive in a stake and we can fight from here, but we're not going to be forced to retreat back beyond that point. This is our this is where we make the breach in the wall, and it is the beginning of not only the conflict, but therefore it is the beginning of the end of the conflict. So the son was born. Satan attempted through his life, including Herod, uh, when he was a baby, but he was snatched up to heaven. He performed what he came here to perform, and he triumphantly not only rose from the grave, but he ascended back unto his father. And said, I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. Um, towards the end of that chapter. His, his life accomplished exactly what the Lord wanted to accomplish. And what he intended to accomplish. Towards the end of that chapter. From heaven's viewpoint. It tells us. That. When. He was no longer able to bear in on or bring persecution to the mother of the infant. When he was unsuccessful in every attempt to consume the mother, it says there 
that he then chose to focus his attention on the other children. If you pick that up or not, it's in Revelation 12. There was more than just the male child. There were the rest of the children. There were the other children. Who in the world are they? What is that talking about? That there were other children here. And the, sa and the Satan, the dragon, decided that he was going to turn and focus on them because he wasn't doing so well. The baby had been snatched away. In every attempt to destroy the baby, he was rebuffed. And the woman, he's not doing so well with. So he turns his attention to the other children to make war on them. Who are they? It tells us very plainly, specifically, who they are. There at the very end of chapter 12. These are those who keep God's commandments and maintain their testimony for Jesus. That's us. We are the other children. Israel did give birth to Jesus, but Israel also gave birth to the followers of Jesus called the Christian church. And that's us. And as surely as Satan attempts and has attempted to destroy the mission of Jesus back when he was born, he turns his attention now and has for some time to those who caught it and got it and carry on its message and carry on its implications. And that is us. We are the children of Mother Israel. From Israel came the Christ, and from the Christ, we, his disciples, follow. Spiritually, we are sons of Abraham, as Paul points out in his letters. And so this is referring to us when it says that he turns now to make war against, persecute the rest of the offspring of Israel, the ones who maintain the testimony of Jesus, the ones who cling to the Son. What is... What can we take from all this, this, uh, this different kind of a Christmas story? It, what, what, is it, what does it leave us with? Wow, a lot of imagery and it's way out there. It's, it's, a, it's a mad world, not only in heaven, but it seems to be a mad world on earth. But what we can know is that this major, major conflict, has already happened. We already can we already see the ending. We already know that the attempt to destroy the love of God and the redemptive process of God was unsuccessful. It's unsuccessful. We already know that. You know, uh, that's why we can sing these Christmas carols. God rest you, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power. That's what we just read in Revelation 12. To save us all from Satan's power. Lest we were gone astray. Uh, the angels could come and they could sing. Glory to God. Peace on earth. Because, because the conflict in heaven had already been ended. The, 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 the attempt had been aborted. To destroy. And so peace had already, in other words, peace had already been won in heaven. So it could be declared on earth. It's just, it's just the, the background. It's the, uh, the spiritual side. It's the significance of the conflict between evil and righteousness. And I want to say this, and I put this, I think, in your sermon notes. I'll close with this. 
When we see a baby, you know, I don't know if I have any more of these or not, I forget. Yeah. The, this, this is what occurred to me. You know, when we, when we see the manger and we hear the story and our hearts are filled with such joy and such tenderness. I mean, everybody loves a baby and everybody loves the drama and the cuteness and, the, and just the innocence. And the, it's a very clear pitch, picture for us of, of the love of God given to us. But the baby described in Revelation 12 verse 5 is one whose little fist rules the earth with an iron rod. So I'm simply saying we don't need to be fooled. We need to be careful not to be fooled and to say, oh, yeah, this is just nothing but a mushy bunch of emotionalism. It's not. This is the story of a child who is born to rule and will rule and does rule. Uh, he was given to one nation, but he was given to be a blessing to all nations. And this is what uh, it was was. Told, what was told Abraham. So this is just a thought for us to close. Um, he will slay the dragon. This baby, this male child, he will slay the dragon, even though we see him and portray him often at Christmas as just the, you know, the, as the, the infant part. He, uh, he is... <coughs> Excuse me. He's an infant for a moment, born the child of man, the son of man. But he was the son of God, and he was born to slay the dragon. That's something that we can just never stop rejoicing about. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this unorthodox, unusual, amazing, powerful picture, the sign. That says there's something bigger going on. And what happened on earth was just what we could only see here. But man, up above and beyond the clouds, on the very throne room of heaven, sketched out across all the horizons of the universe, is a knockdown, drag out war. And the dragon wants to eat the baby and destroy it. And it'll never happen. Because it's already been ordained that the child will rule. And in the end, he will destroy all those who follow and those the, the dragon himself. So we take hope at this Christmas time. We thank you for the amazing way it unfolded among us and in our world. And for the joy of, of, of how it just affects our lives from day to day. The, the, the hope that we realize when we think God is like me and he became like me, different as he is, he understands my flesh, he knows my frame, and he, 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 he understands my humanity. What a joy and hope that brings to us and what a, what a comfort that is. And yet, Lord, what a, what a, what a thrill to read and understand that there's a larger picture and these things are signs of the greater war that's already been won on our behalf and for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.